Well, welcome back, everybody. It looks like pretty much everybody is back here. Um, so tonight, in recognition of Earth Day, we're going to have um, a little bit of a break from discussing the three characteristics for a talk on um, Buddhism, nature, and climate change. And it's something of a tradition at SIMS to have this type of a talk on this um, Monday in April following Earth Day or right before Earth Day. Um, and Tim has been delivering these talks for the last four years, but he's not available this evening. So I'm kind of filling in. Maybe try to channel Tim when I'm doing my talk. And before I begin, I'd really like to acknowledge the help and support that I've received in preparing for this talk tonight from um, the resources that Iris Antman and the Climate Action Group shared with me, you know, having Tim t- Tim's talks available for me to listen to. And also from Lauren Wilson, one of my fellow local Dharma leaders who gave a really wonderful talk on this subject um, yesterday for our Sunday sit. So many thanks from this for this support. And it's support I especially appreciate because, you know, this is one of those talks where I'm up here giving advice to you guys about this subject. And yet I'm well a bit aware that... Um, I need to be following my own advice, too, and I'm not necessarily doing that all the time, but I struggle with an appropriate response to the climate crisis as well. So the commemoration of Earth Day this month highlights the importance of our relationship with our planet, our need to consider all the problems we currently have with the environment, including the climate crisis. So as I said, in a way, this is a bit of a departure from our current topic of the three characteristics, but in another way, the climate crisis and all the related environmental problems, well, these are really just all about (laughs) the three characteristics. I mean, what better example could you have you know there's no question that this is a situation that has a lot of dukkha a lot of suffering it really reminds us that everything is subject to birth and aging and death and you know then maybe this applies not only to us as individuals but even to humankind as a species And it's a really painful example of the reality of change, impermanence, and instability. And it shows us all too clearly the consequences of our ignorance and unwise actions. And it touches on the truth of anatta or not-self, too, in certain ways. You know, it reminds us that we're not separate from the rest of nature. And what affects the earth affects us, too, very deeply. And it brings into question our ability to fix, our ability to control, you know, this idea that we can be in charge. But at the same time, it's a situation that really does call out for wise action. So in 
another way it's really a very, very timely subject for us to be talking about at the same time as we're studying the three characteristics. And then, too, you know, like most difficult and painful and unpleasant things that come up in our lives, our tendency when we're faced with the reality of the climate crisis is to respond with anxiety, with confusion, with anger, with denial. It's like all those familiar emotions that we know so well that come up. Whenever anything happens in our lives that's painful, that we don't want, that we can't see very clearly, that maybe we don't understand, it's kind of pretty much the same sort of thing. And at our Sunday sit yesterday, um, someone mentioned uh, a comment from Al Gore that he made about the climate crisis that Um, our reactions to it usually go from denial and then when we get a bit more informed to despair. And of course, neither of those reactions is all that helpful, even though they're totally natural. But it might be that our Buddhist practice can show us another way. Our practice really challenges us to engage with these problems of environmental destruction and climate change. And I think it also supports us in our challenge to respond in a way that's actually wise and helpful. So how can our practice help and support us? Well, one way is by healing our relationship with nature. I think we can all recognize that even though we individually might not share these feelings, but culturally and as a society, one of the major reasons that we're in the fix that we're in now with climate and the environment is because of our distorted relationship with nature and our idea that we're separate from it and it's something that we can control and exploit and use in any way that we would like. But this is not what the Dharma teaches. In the Buddhist teachings, there's a recognition and appreciation of nature in our practice. And the teachings really emphasize that we're not separate, that we are part of nature. We too are nature. And our connection with nature is emphasized in this tradition in just really so many ways. I think that some of you might remember from last year our journey um, through the Xanox herding pictures, maybe with delight, (laughs) maybe with not such a positive feeling. I'm not sure. They're not everybody's cup of tea. But if you were here for the Xenox hurting pictures, you'll probably remember that much of the journey of awakening in these pictures took place in nature. When we meet the ox herder, he or she is wandering in nature among unnamed rivers and through remote mountains. And the ox herder continues the search the discovery and the taming of the ox in nature, among images of nature. 
And then finally, after going through much struggle, the Oxfordor reaches a point of deep insight um, and really sees through form into emptiness. But after this really kind of height of the mountaintop, the Oxfordor you know, returns to the normal form of our world. But interestingly enough, not at first to the human society. They first return to nature. And I think that's something that's significant. You know, it makes me aware of the really deep connection that there is between nature and the teachings of the Buddha and our practice. And it's kind of, reflecting how being in nature is really such an important place for us, a transition in our journey up the mountain and down the mountain, you know, a place where we can go to really integrate and start to understand what we glimpse in our practice when we're on the mountaintop. So most definitely in Zen practice, we're encouraged to connect with nature. We see it in the ox herding pictures with so many of the poems and paintings from scenes of nature. We see it in all the poems that we hear that come down to us from Zen masters about moments in nature, seasonal qualities, you know, the cherry blossoms, the autumn leaves, all of those things, the change and fragility of life. But this connection with nature isn't something that's only in the Zen tradition. It's there in our own Theravadan tradition as well. We might remember that in the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the four foundations of mindfulness, at the very beginning, the Buddha instructs his followers to go into the forest at the foot of the tree or to a quiet and empty place in, in nature and to meditate in that place, in that kind of peace. And we also know, according to tradition, the Buddha himself, before his enlightenment, seated himself at the foot of a tree where he vowed that he would stay until he attained deep insight into suffering. And we also know that when Mara, the spirit of... um, Delusion came to tempt the Buddha, challenging his right even to seek his awakening. The Buddha touched the earth and called the earth as his support and his witness. So we really have this sense of nature as our support too, and our teacher. It's there throughout various traditions. And I think, too, you know, the time that we spend in nature can be a time when it's really easiest to bring our minds into the present, to connect with the body, the senses. You know, when we're in nature, we can be aware of the sounds and the sights and the smells of our natural environment, the temperature of the air, the feeling of the sun and the wind on our bodies. And the beauty and the fascination fascination of nature can really bring us out of our own, you know, inner daydreams and memories and into the reality of the present moment. 
quoting the Zen teacher Martine Batchelor, we enter a world where, having forgotten ourselves, we are enlightened by all things. And that sense of being with all things in nature. The Buddhist monk Sayada Utejaniya, who's a very influential, influential teacher in our tradition, often says that when we study the Dharma, we study nature. And in saying this, he's making the point that we too are nature. And what goes in our, on in our minds and our bodies is nature. You know, not our separate individual selves, but nature. And that our lives really are a reflection of the processes of nature. And I think it's also true that the processes of nature reveal and reflect the truths of the Dharma. So when we study nature, we study the Dharma. Because what we see when we come close to nature are the truths of the Dharma. In nature, we see, oops, we see the reality of change. We see the cycles of day and night. We see the changing seasons. And, you know, something that we might be appreciating, especially intensely now at this time of year when we're experiencing that transition into spring. And I know that I've really been feeling it lately, even though we've had such a really slow and cold spring. When I go for a walk, I'm really starting to see now the trees budding out, the flowering plums and the cherries and the daffodils. And in my garden, the peas that I planted, finally, finally, they're starting to come up. So I know that spring is on its way, and many of you probably also have that feeling. So nature really reminds us of these cycles, the cycle of life, how with all things there's birth, aging, and finally death. And we've been talking about this a lot recently in our series on the three characteristics. And that inevitability of birth, aging, sickness, and death, and the pain that goes with it is really one of the very foundations of the teachings of Dukkha. So we're getting familiar with that. But it isn't only we as humans that are subject to this truth. It's a reality for all living beings. They're part of this cycle of nature as well. So we can reflect on that, knowing that for all beings, as we're born, we'll die. And so we recognize our fragility, the fragility of all beings, and all of us who are part of nature, we're all subject to this instability and injury and need care. And nature, too, really gives us a sense of the connectivity of all things. We see the reality of change and death and dissolution, but we also see that it isn't all chaos. There's an orderliness in this process and a sense of relationship and a sense of cause and effect. And these things are teachings of the Dharma too. All things arise from causes and conditions. So we kind of see we don't exist in a vacuum. We're part of something larger than ourselves. 
this web of life. And one of the most really beautiful expressions of this interconnectivity is the Mahayana teaching of Indra's net. And the Chinese patriarch Du Shun, who lived during the first century AD, puts it this way. The manner in which all dharmas interpenetrate is like an imperial net of celestial jewels extending in all directions infinitely, without limit. As for the imperial net of heavenly jewels, it is known as Indra's net, a net which is made entirely of jewels. Because of the clarity of the jewels, we are, they are all reflected in and enter into each other ad infinitum. Within each jewel simultaneously is reflected the whole net. Ultimately, nothing comes or goes. And so this kind of expression of interconnectivity and emptiness is something we also find in the interconnectivity of nature. Each thing affects all the things that are around us. And matter undergoes endless change, but ultimately is not created and not destroyed. So this connection between Dharma and nature, I think, is something that many of us sense. And we might sense it even if we've only started practicing. And often we find that in nature, that's when we really kind of get the deepest sense of the greatest truths of the teachings. You know, a sense of impermanence, of change, of connectivity with all of life. And where maybe we have a little bit of sense that there's not quite so much of the sense of self. And yet it can be really easy also to forget this connection. I mentioned earlier that one of our most common responses to the climate crisis is to ignore it. And I think for most of us, it isn't so much a question of denial or, you know, saying that this isn't happening. It's more that we'd rather not think about it because it's too confusing, too painful, and we feel helpless to make a difference. And it can be easy not to think about it. We go about our busy lives and we have a sense that, you know, the environment is important, that the climate crisis is important, but we don't always feel an immediate impact. And so we kind of feel it at a bit of a distance often. We think, you know, it would be good to do something. We should do something, but we aren't quite sure what we should do that we aren't already doing. We don't really know where our help is needed. And I was thinking that in a way, it's a little bit like uh, if you're familiar with the meta practice, when we're cultivating meta for a neutral person, we might have some sense of concern for that person, but there's also this kind of sense of, distance. We don't really know what this person needs. We don't know how to contribute to their well-being. And sometimes it's not even easy to see them. You know, we're so preoccupied with our own concerns and the concerns of those who are right there, you know, face to face with us. So it might be that our ability and our willingness to care for the earth and to respond to the climate crisis would be aided by bringing nature closer. 
speaking in terms of meta, you know, maybe moving it from the neutral category into the category of dear friend. And, um, you know, someone that we're, or something we're motivated to care for out of love. And those of you who have done meta practice may know, just as our relationship with a neutral person changes when we really start paying attention to them and cultivating meta for them, so our relation to nature may change as we can begin to pay closer attention to it. So what might we do to bring more of nature into our practice? You probably have a lot of your own ideas for cultivating a closer relationship with nature, but I thought I would offer a few thoughts. You know, there are various ways we could make nature more a part of our meditation practice. We might do this by sitting outside where we can be very aware of the earth, the air, the creatures around us. We can do meditations such as the meditation on the four elements that helps us connect with elements of nature. We can do metta for the earth and for the creatures of the earth. And I've also found that doing some form of walk, uh, walking practice outside can be really helpful too. It doesn't have to be a formal walking practice back and forth, back and forth. It can be as simple as taking a mindful walk. But a walk where our attention is really focused on feeling the body moving through space, on seeing the natural sights around us, the sounds, the smells, the temperature of the environment, you know, really connecting with our experience. And if you're drawn in that direction, um, having a haiku practice can also be a good way to connect with nature. You know, the haiku is a very, very short, simple 17-syllable poem that captures one moment and includes a seasonal word or a seasonal feeling. So by, you know, composing a tiny poem, maybe when we're out in nature, maybe as we go for a walk, can help us to really notice, you know, one special moment of our experience and to also notice its impermanence and its changing quality. So it can be a beautiful practice to try. And, of course, we can also increase our connection with nature through, you know, a lot of, you know, simple everyday activities, you know, simply spending time in nature, walking, hiking, sitting outside, noticing nature around us, having animals in our lives, our pets and the wild animals that come into our um, area, too, that we often maybe don't notice. Gardening is another really helpful activity because when we do that, we're really aware of cycles of nature, of birth and growth, maturity and decline. And we also get a real appreciation of our limits of control because, you know, we can see it's helpful to provide some care and do things with these plants we're trying to grow. But we also see how much of the process of these plants we're trying to cultivate is unpredictable and beyond our control. So it's a really good teacher. So as we face the climate crisis, maybe doing some of these things to come closer to nature as part of our practice 
can help us to sort of see through that illusion of distance we often can have and help us to break out of this tendency to avoid and ignore. But denial and avoidance, of course, aren't our only reactions to the climate crisis. There's that other reaction of despair. And I think, you know, recognizing that is equally important. Once we've kind of broken through the pattern or the habit of avoidance and started to really engage with this problem, it's really easy to get overwhelmed because it's so enormous and it's so complex. And we often feel really helpless in the face of the climate crisis. And it's really kind of just the same sort of helplessness we feel in the face of dukkha in general. You know, when we really open to the truth of instability, of changeability, of loss and pain in the lives of beings around us in our own lives, just as we have to open to, if we open to the reality of the climate crisis, it's really difficult. You know, we don't want to feel this kind of fear and anxiety. So maybe we get angry and look for somebody to blame. And it's certainly easy to do that with this problem. We can blame the politicians. We can blame the oil companies. We can blame the corporations. We can blame the the climate deniers. You know, the list goes on and on. And, of course, there's some responsibility there. But at the same time, we know anger isn't the answer. Or maybe we rush around and desperately try to do more and more to fix things even things we can't really control. And then when we see that this isn't working out so well, we get lost in despair and become immobilized. But our Dharma practice really encourages us not to get lost in anger or despair or even in frantic activity, but to really notice, to notice these reactions and to pause and to bring some mindfulness to them. So we can really get a sense of whether what we are doing is actually easing the situation or only causing more pain for ourselves, maybe for others too. And if we have this kind of awareness, even though we might still feel a lot of difficult emotions, we might find we're not so stuck in them. We're not so immobilized by them. And we might find a little more stability, a little more clarity. So this climate crisis really is a situation that calls out for equanimity. You know, not passivity or indifference, but really having that stability to stay steady in the midst, in the midst of all that might be arising in the midst of the destruction that we've caused, and maybe we might be able to repair if we act quickly enough. Also in the midst of these great cycles of change that our earth has gone through in the past, which we may only have limited control over. I think this need for equanimity was another thing that came up in our discussions 
we had on Sunday, people were remembering the Christina Feldman's teachings about equanimity and her teachings about staying steady in the midst, in the midst of all the dukkha and the chaos that arise in our minds and in our world. So that sense of being steady. And out of that steadiness, we might begin to understand a little better the wise actions we can take and the limits of what we can control. And maybe it will help us to accept the fact that, you know, positive changes don't happen overnight and yet still have the faith to feel like it can happen and it does happen moment by moment and step by step. And I think we can also really appreciate the helpfulness of Sangha, that we're not alone in facing these issues and that we can support each other and work together. And in fact, I mean, that's really going to be critical because none of these problems can be solved unless we work together worldwide on a scale that maybe we have not been willing to do ever. (laughs) In his book, Zen and the Art of Saving the Planet, Thich Nhat Hanh outlines a beautiful set of principles for meeting the climate catastrophe. And um, Lauren shared shared these with us on Sunday, and I'd like to pass them along to all of you tonight because I think they really show so well and how beautifully how our practice can support us. So the first of these principles is reverence for life. So there's just kind of a deep sense of the sacredness of all life, the sacredness of nature itself, feeling that sacredness when we're in nature and having a deep commitment to non-harming that goes with recognizing that sacredness. And the second is deep simplicity. And this fits in really well with um, the teachings on renunciation, the precepts, uh, precept of not taking what isn't given, and of realizing that, you know, so often we really have all we need to be happy. And so we don't need to grasp so many things. And then the third is nourishment and healing. And one of the key aspects of this that is stressed is actually our own nourishment and healing, having compassion for ourselves and allowing and taking care of our own minds when they fall into anger and despair. So we have the strength to take the actions that are needed in the world and we don't just get overwhelmed and burnt out. So, you know, taking time to care for ourselves. The fourth is loving speech and deep listening. And these are really difficult and challenging often in the very polarized environment we're in these days, but so crucial when you consider that we really need to work together and come to an understanding if we can really, if we really want to do anything about the climate crisis. And then the fifth is true love. And by this, Thich Nhat Hanh means loving kindness, compassion, 
sympathetic joy and equanimity, the Brahma Viharas. So a really beautiful sense of set of um, principles. And I really do have the feeling that if we can bring these kind of guidelines into our actions, then even though you know, the things that happen might not work out quite as we think they should or hope they will or in the timeline that we want them to, good will come. Good is bound to come. So our Dharma practice challenges us to care for the planet, and it also gives us tools to help us develop the understanding, the desire, and the energy to take the actions that can really make a difference. We study Dharma, we study nature. We study nature, we study Dharma. We cultivate our relationship with nature, all of nature, and we move forward to work for a healthier planet out of love. So let's sit for a moment together. And I'd like to close with a poem by Lynn Unger, as we sit. What will you do with the last good days before the seas rise and the skies close in, before the terrible bill for all our thoughtless wanting finally comes due? What will you do with the last fresh morning filled with the watermelon seed scent of cut grass and the insistent bird calling sweet, sweet across the shining day. Crops are dying, economies failing. Men crazy with the lust for power and fame are shooting up movie theaters and engineering the profits of banks. It is entirely possible it only gets worse from here. How can you leave your heart open to such a vast, pervasive sadness? How can you close your eyes to the riot of joy and beauty that remains? The solutions, if there are any, to be had are complex, detailed, and demanding. The answers are immediate and small. Wake up. Give thanks. Sing. Thank you all so much for your patient listening and your presence. And before we open um, things up for your comments and your questions, I want to um, 
turn the floor over to Iris Antman, who is the leader of uh, the Sims Climate Action Group. And she's going to take a little bit of time to tell you about the group and to maybe contribute some of her thoughts about facing the climate catastrophe. So um, she's going to be joining us through Zoom. So Iris, would you like to take the floor now? Uh, yes, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Lynn. So um, I'm here from Echo. I think you need to... Okay, that's better. Thank you. Um, hi, everybody. My name's Iris Antman. And um, thank you, Lyndall, for that beautiful, beautiful talk. Um, very moving. And um, I'm, I'm so grateful for, for all of the preparation you must have done. And um, I wish that I had heard Lauren's talk yesterday. I'm sure it was uh, quite wonderful as well. Um, <clears throat> and thank you for giving me a few minutes to talk about our climate action group. So um, back in May of 2018, after one of our weekly meetings, uh, I made an, an announcement about wanting to start a climate group. And um after the evening was over, other interested people came up to me and we, and we began meeting. Um, we shared a, um, a, a, a sense of urgency about the worsening climate crisis. And we wondered how to address it using our Buddhist practice as a guide. And over these five years, we've hosted a variety of events, including discussions, movie nights, a forum series with guest speakers co-hosted with a Tibetan Buddhist Sangha. And last year we organized and sponsored a concert fundraiser for a climate justice project called Green Buildings Now that raised more than $10,000. For the past two years on Earth Day, we've done silent walking meditations, first on the Seattle College campus and last year at Cal Anderson Park. Our group has been meeting monthly over these five years, <clears throat> excuse me, going on Zoom when the pandemic started. We're a small group with a core of six or seven, with occasional new members joining and others leaving, and an email list of 37. The individuals in our core group are involved in different ways with climate action. What we share is dedication to our spiritual practice and trying to integrate the Buddhist teachings into our daily lives. How to live as ethically and kindly as possible in the ways we care for ourselves, each other, our communities, and the world. We're all faced with challenges. Each of us is called to different issues, and each of us must find ways to engage that are meaningful and nurturing. If you're interested in viewing our recorded events, or having access to our meeting notes and other resources, your name can be added to our email list. You'll receive a monthly meeting reminder and occasional other emails related to climate issues and events. Last month, we did a largely silent walking meditation in the upper trails at Seward Park, a magical old-growth forest. The idea for this grew out of a shared need to acknowledge and grieve the environmental and ecological deterioration we see and read about, as well as to connect with each other 
in the comfort, solace, and inspiration the outdoors provides, as Lyndall so eloquently spoke to. Being together in the sacred space of an ancient forest with few words was a source of all of that and more. We're planning a similar event, also in Seward Park, on Saturday, June 10th, and we're inviting the whole Sangha. Uh, We'll have an announcement in our May and June events calendar with details. We hope you join us, and if you'd like to be added to our email list, uh, please contact me. Um, Ken will drop my email in the chat. And just another couple of words, uh, Lyndall, you, you invited me to share some of my thoughts about how to approach this. And uh, all, all I will say is that um, oh, some, some Zen teacher from long ago was asked at the end of his life by his students, how would you sum up the Buddhist teachings? And he said, an appropriate response and um, knowing what one's appropriate response to the myriad challenges around uh, um, around the climate and environmental crisis is not easy. But but one thing our group is pretty clear on, um, which is that working together in sangha in community is. Um, is essential. Um, so thank you. Thank you for your kind attention. Mm, thank you so much, Iris. It's really a gift to us to hear about the, more about the group and hear about your thoughts too. And so don't go too far away though, <laughs> because I think now we have some time for your comments and your questions and Maybe for me, or perhaps you have questions also for Iris that you would like to ask her about the climate group. So, um, oh, yes. Just a, a quick question. What was it? I need to um, go to the right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be quick. Um, is this on? Probably not. Push it up. Yeah, we we can hear you. Oh, you can. Really? It doesn't sound like it's on. Them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, it's it's on. Oh, it is on. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, all this for I just wanted to know the title and the author of that last poem. Oh yes, right. <laughs> I really I don't usually like poetry, and that was was so. That is oh man. Yeah, I'm, I I had a hard time not you know shedding some little crocodile tears. It's uh, the last good days by Lynn Unger. Oh oh okay mm-hmm. yeah thank you very much yeah you're welcome. <laughs> it just seems like it's the perfect poem for this topic as challenging as it is. Yeah, you're welcome. Any other questions or comments, perhaps from uh, the Zoom world? I have a hard time on my little screen knowing if you 
Well, I, I can't see everybody, so I can't necessarily know if you have your hand up, but maybe. <laughs> oh, yes. Here he comes to the microphone. Hooray. <laughs> Yeah, so one thing that, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, I was thinking of during a lot of this is how to respond to other people that are going through, you know, these, you know, feelings of grief, or, you know, all the, the myriad of feelings that have had that, that we all feel, um, who maybe aren't part of the Sangha and don't have you know, I, I want to to be able to to help people and to talk to people in ways that aren't um, feeding into the larger sense of grief. And I, I haven't found a good way to speak to that. And I wonder if you or Iris have any thoughts on maybe skillful ways to be there for people, hear that grief, and and yet not not spiral it out. Hmm. Well, maybe I'll start, and then um, Iris, if you have something to add, you can add. Um, it is really difficult. It is really difficult. I, um, I think about what Thich Nhat Hanh said, you know, about one of the principles being really um, loving speech and deep listening, and so I think that's a good kind of goal to have is to speak in a loving way and and really listen and sort of I don't know like acknowledge the grief but maybe without encouraging the grief to spread out into other kinds of reactions that are more destructive you know, like anger and despair. Because I think it's normal to feel the grief. You know, it's sort of like with Dukkha, we feel the first arrow, but we don't want to start with the second arrow. So maybe sort of being with them in their grief, but gently directing them away from expressions of rage and despair as much as you can. <laughs> Does that help a little bit? Yeah. Iris, do you have any thoughts? Um, one thought is that um, many people and teachers have said that we grieve things that we love. So to connect um, our grief with the fact that we're grieving because because we love the earth, we love the animals, we love the beings, we love the person who's grieving. So to, to connect it to love, I think, moves, um, mm. moves our hearts and minds to a place that is uh, more opening and more sustaining and nourishing than, than just being with the grief. Um, but, you know, all, all, the, all the emotions will come. Anger will come mm-hmm. and, and despair and then we know through our practice that feelings come and go. So, um, you know, sort of pointing that out. 
that 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 those feelings won't stay. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I I love I love that response, especially connecting it with love. I love I love that. So thank you. So, Lyndall, I wonder if mm-hmm. I, I can um, offer one, uh, one other comment. Um, oh, certainly, please do. Thank you. Um, which is that um, we we can't we can't fix anything. Um, we can take action, and taking action together uh, is uh, more, more is is easier. And generally more, more helpful. But uh, other teachers have suggested that having, um, a fixed outcome in mind for our actions can set us up for disappointment. So to figure out the wisest action and, and take it in a skillful way and then let it go and, you know, and not grasp on. Think should happen. Um, just a idea. Mm, yeah, thank you. I, I I agree. That's so important, especially in this type of a situation where there's such complexity and so much is unknown. And you know, we might have a vision of fixing everything, but often our actions might be a more of a way of adapting to a whole new different regimen that we might have in our natural environment. So, yeah, I, I think this, that's very good advice. We can't be sure. We take the wisest actions we can see. We hope for the best and recognize that there's much we can't control. Yes, please come up to the mic. What are y'all thoughts on uh, green capitalism and this kind of idea of of um, the, it seems this movement to um, to move people into still consuming, but kind of putting a um, putting a uh, a green label on it to make it kind of less um, kind of take the guilt out of mm. out of the consumption. <laughs> Well, I have to say that I'm not like a real expert on this, but um, I think that for for those of us um, on this path, that the sense of of deep simplicity is probably a wiser (laughs) uh, uh, kind of... uh, view of because i mean it's it's probably if you know we're going to consume some products of course we are and to have products that are less harmful to the environment is better although often we think that this alternative is less harmful and then other difficulties seem to arise after a while with that less harmful alternative so I I don't know if I want to speak 
too much about that philosophy exactly, but I think that that um, kind of for us, a philosophy of simplicity and and not not using what we don't really need, whether green or not, <laughs> is probably a wise. Uh, way to to go but it, it's a you know it's kind of too bad when there are like maybe act well sort of actions that seem well intentioned that are labeled in a way that really doesn't necessarily solve the problem which could happen with that sort of thing but yeah it's kind of a difficult question to know how to answer <laughs> Can I invite Suze to ask a question? Pardon? Oh, she does? I can't tell that. Yes, Suze, please. I can't see your hand on my... That's okay. I um, think I don't have the reaction buttons on the right. <laughs> okay, that's okay. Thanks, Ken. Oh, no, I see it. Yeah, um, thanks, Ken, for noticing. So I was really struck by your bringing up the relationship between the neutral person and how we um, sometimes relate to nature and to the, this, um, the climate crisis. And I just wanted to share that the last time I was on retreat with Christina Feldman, she talked about how she um, often will have a year-long goal for her practice. And this one year, her goal was to not have any more neutral people. And what that whole process was like for her to just start really seeing the people who had been in the neutral category. And it just occurred to me that the way you had combined those two um, would be a really wonderful practice to um, take what is neutral in our environment, you know, the, the, the bugs, the plants, the trees, the dirt, the whatever that is is generally so neutral and see about changing that relationship. So I wondered if you had any thoughts about that. I think that's a wonderful suggestion. I think that's a really wonderful suggestion. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it may, it may be when I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, I really ought to follow this advice and do this in my practice too. But I, I think it can I feel like it could make a difference, you know, because I think if we pay attention, I mean, if we even notice those little um, earthworms that are crawling around in the, in the garden or the, the hummingbirds and the birds, I mean, it seems like so many people in our sangha too are bird watchers and kind of connect that way and, taking that interest and noticing all of these animals, I think would be a wonderful way or all of these elements of the earth, not just animals, plants, everything would be a really wonderful way to build connection. And I think the, the more connection and love, the more we're motivated to act in a way that's wise and loving so I think it would be a wonderful practice. 
maybe lots of us will try that this year. It would be a great practice for the year. Thank you, Suze. Oh yes, I see. Now I can see. Yes, Stephen. We have a we have a couple of hands up on Zoom. Yeah. Lauren, Lauren was first, and then Steve. Okay. Uh, just quickly, Lyndall, um, I loved that uh, Indra's net. I I didn't know about Indra's net and the interconnection and the the fact that each jewel reflects and and reflects, and so. Um, I was thinking of the nature around me, like the trees and the insects and the dirt and everything, and thinking of like uh, Suze was talking about the neutral person and you were and changing that to um, not having it neutral. That just uh, seeing the interconnection just know, you know, just kind of making a point of that, using that Indra's net as a model to see where I can see that in everything. And that that connection, even though like the other thing you were talking about was the grief, grief and the love that actually Iris was mentioning, mm-hmm. that by through connection, seeing the connection there's grief, but there's love because there's connection. So even if this, there is sorrow and tragedy and death, there's still connection. So I just really liked that Indra's net, and I'm going to read that. Um, I'm glad you shared that. So mm. Thank you, Lauren. Yeah, it's a really beautiful image. I, I think so, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's yeah. Steve still is. Stephen is there. Yeah, is he? Yeah, please, please go ahead if you can. <laughs> We'd love to hear from you. <laughs> okay, it took quite a while for the unmute to turn off. Oh, uh, or to turn on. Um, uh, I don't have enough uh, bandwidth to have the video on at the same time, I guess. Oh, okay, yeah, because I know now I can't see you. Okay, please go ahead. Uh, I was, I just wanted to thank you for the teachings, which I heard uh, you give so beautifully, so many teachings that are so helpful. And uh, I... I just I felt moved to say that and and to uh, particularly say the questions have been especially good too tonight. Uh, I I usually go to the Thursday night group and uh, these questions are really important and uh, I was moved to to share a despair related uh, experience I had, uh, which 
was just noticing the point I got uh, to in the particular moment of such despair, seeing what was sure to me to be true. And uh, I just thought it was, I recalled the thankfulness that uh, Sayadai Tejaniya had of the amazing ability to be aware of that. And I suddenly laughed, but that was kind of funny. Uh, I, I really have a preference and uh, I don't want to feel the despair, but do. And uh, the thought of being aware of that woke me up to remembering, mm-hmm. to see the change. And now it's gone. Mm-hmm. And now it's different. Uh, I, I, I remembered to, to notice and see it's different now the attitude I had, the, the mindset, the, the thinking I had. And um, that's what resonated with me so much when you said seeing the preferences and, and the attitudes and the feelings arise as they do, not wishing one or the other mm-hmm. to feel in the moment. Oh, thank you so much. That's really a beautiful example of the way mindfulness works. Because just as you're saying, Stephen, when we really become aware of these feelings and emotions, we're not trapped in them. We're not lost in them. You know, there's a little bit of something else there in our mind that makes us able to see a wider picture. So, you know, you really describe that in a beautiful way. And I'm, I'm glad that this evening has been helpful. And I agree, too, that people had really interesting comments and questions. The, the awareness of all the joy that exists, whether you are noticing it or not, mm-hmm. can at least be thought of as, oh, that too. Mm-hmm. And I think when you're really aware and noticing, there can be a joy in the knowing in spite of <laughs> the fact that what's being known is difficult and painful. That's another one of the kind of miracles. <laughs> I think just that's as what you happened. are pointing yes. out. Yeah, just as yes. you are pointing out. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Any last comments? And then maybe we can finish up for the night. Okay, well, maybe um, we can just sit together for a few moments to kind of close on a little bit of a quiet note. And take some time to share the merit of our practice together tonight. So as we spend um, end our time together this evening, taking a moment to share the merit generated by our practice with all beings. On this earth. Beings of the air, 
beings of the water. Beings of the land. All beings. May they live in ease and in safety. Thanks for being here, everybody. It was kind of stressful, but kind of wonderful (laughs) to be substituting uh, tonight. It's something I don't think any of us of our local Dharma leaders are quite used to it. We're used to our Zoom, you know, on Sundays, and that's all comfortable, but this isn't quite so comfortable. But I'm really glad I had a chance to be here, too. It's lovely to be with you. Thank you. And remember the Donna baskets, generosity to Sims is great.